you're listening to the Primary Medicine Podcast with Kevin and Dimitri, bringing you the best in primary care CME that you can use in your everyday practice. Welcome back to the Primary Medicine Podcast. For listeners that were there last month, you probably remember that I told Kevin that I had contacted the plague that is hand, foot, and mouth disease, a wonderful gift for my children, and something that I wouldn't wish on my worst enemies. So I thought it'd be interesting to talk about during this month's podcast. It is actually the season for hand, foot, and mouth disease. It tends to peak around summertime and the first few months of fall. So it's the, the you know the ruiner of summer vacations. I'll start off by talking about what actually causes hand, foot, and mouth disease. It, there, there's a viral infection. It's a virus. There's two main viruses which can be blamed. The Coxsackie virus A16 and the Enterovirus 71. It's a, it's quite contagious. It's actually acquired through exposure of your oral, nasal, or conjunctival tissues to contaminated oral secretions or fecal material. So, you know, if both your kids are sick with it and you're having to hug them and comfort them, well, you can get it. Although, interestingly enough, it tends to be less prevalent in adults. I was the lucky outlier. It tends to show more in children under 10. What's also interesting is that males seem to be a bit more likely to catch it. And the other unfortunate thing is it's unlike some other childhood diseases, you may get hand, foot, and mouth multiple times. So having it once doesn't really give you any immunity, especially considering that there's a couple of viruses, there's two viruses causing it. It does have a pretty classic presentation. You get your viral prodrome, which you know, a viral prodrome usually involves some kind of fever, malaise, myalgias, coughing, congestion. That may last for 24 to 48 hours. And then you have the rash. In almost all cases, up to 90%, the rash is usually distributed within the mouth, feet, and hands. And the rash can be macropapular or vesicular, or both. In 50% of cases, however, the rash may extend to the groin area. It may develop the buttocks, and in some cases, the knees and the elbows. It's rare that this rash will involve the trunk. So if you have somebody coming in with a trunk or rash, you should consider a differential diagnosis. And I'll talk about some of them in a sec. Some people actually may present with only oral lesions. So hand, foot, and mouth disease can be a cause for herpangina. So as you can see, it's mostly a disease of the skin, but other organ systems can be affected. Like most viruses, there's always a risk for myocarditis. You know, we had, we actually talked about this with Wahid two podcasts ago. We had a case of our myocarditis, so you can get myocarditis. Be on the lookout. Thankfully, it's rare. You may get pneumonia, like most viral infections. And unfortunately, some really rare cases, you may get brainstem encephalitis. That's usually what causes death in, in other countries, in less developed countries. Head foot and mouth disease can be deadly, mostly because of the myocarditis and the brainstem encephalitis complications. Interestingly enough, it also can cause nail shedding within four months of the infection. I had no idea that it did that. I'll try and remember it if somebody comes in freaking out about their nails falling off. Not people are not really sure why that happens. In fact, people aren't really sure why this 
the virus presents in this manner? Why does it actually present in the mouth, the hand, and the feet? It's a bit of a quirk of this disease. An interesting quirk and makes the diagnosis easier because ultimately the diagnosis is clinical. You can actually try to collect viral samples from the lesions, especially if you're dealing with fresh vesicular lesions. So Coxsackie virus, by the way, is the one that tends to cause the vesicular lesions, while the enterovirus causes the papular and macropapular ones. So if you're not quite sure, and if the distribution is a bit odd, you should consider doing a viral swab. It's the same swab that you would uh, if you're trying to find if a patient has herpes simplex virus. So we consider this presentation. Let's talk a bit about differential. Really, whenever you have a rash in a child with fever, you need to consider all the pediatric exanthems. So the common ones are scarlet fever and fifth disease, as well as rosiola. Rosiola can actually present with, with fever before the rash. And now, thanks to poor vaccination rates, you need to consider chickenpox, which tends to distribute over the body, not just the palms and the feet. Measles, which is similar distribution, and rubella. Probably uh, later on, the next year, I'll try and do a podcast on all these virus, all these pediatric examples and how to differentiate them. But it's something I think that's that's important to know if you're a primary care physician doing walk-in clinic. Another differential diagnosis you should consider, especially if you're dealing with just mouth ulcers, is aphthostomatitis or herpetic gingivostomatitis. Though, and the second one is actually quite painful. Usually, it tends to cause gingival bleeding unlike hand foot and mouth disease, can be quite severe and can lead to dehydration. And actually brings me to the next point, how do you treat hand foot and mouth disease? It's supportive management. It, the, the, the disease itself tends to last from one to two weeks. I think on average it's, it's around 10 days. And the main issue I find in my clinic is that the mouth lesions can cause dehydration in younger children because of how painful they can be. I actually had one case where we were quite close to sending her to emerge for rehydration because we we're having issues uh, with her taking fluids in. So that's that's what I see. Uh, that's I think that's in terms of water management. That's what you need to consider. Unfortunately, treatment options are a bit limited. So one thing you can do is give anti-inflammatories and uh, and pain medications and hope that that helps. So Motrin, Tylenol, and Advil. I should say acetaminophen and uh, ibuprofen. And then the, the second treatment options are your topical anesthetics. So you have lidocaine, 2% solution, also soda xylocaine gel. You have benzocaine gel, which is a 20% solution. You, found, you find that in the trademark oral gel. And you have the benzidamine liquid, which is tantum. Those can help. And I've used them before, but there's a couple of issues. So you can probably remember there was there was the FDA, I think 2011, or a bit later, they released a report saying that oral gels or benzocaine can, had, lead, had led to some serious side effects, including methoglobinemia. So they, they had said be very careful uh, using it in children under the age of two. But with lidocaine, the... They had found some issues with overdosing and convulsions and death, again, in, in children under the age of two. And tantum or benzidamine hadn't really been studied safely if in children less than five years of age. So be aware that there's some serious side effects of these medications. 
Overdosing on them on top of that theoretically can lead to issues with the swallowing reflex of children, especially younger children, so it can lead to aspiration pneumonia. It causes dysfunction of the way children swallow. And, th and that's why you generally don't want them to swallow this. So actually applying these solutions in younger children can be difficult because how do you get a two-year-old, uh, how do you prevent a two-year-old from swallowing what you're putting in their mouth? You may, you may use a Q-tip, but it can be a bit difficult. So the other issue with these um, with these with these treatments is that if you look at the studies, you did a study on on lidocaine specifically. They haven't done a lot on the other two. It doesn't seem to help that much with the pain. So use them with caution. If you're, the child is young, I, I tend to suggest Advil, Tylenol, and just hydration with with Pedialyte. If they're a bit older and they know what they're doing, and you you and you can easily apply the, the solution to their mouth, then, you know, you have those three options, xylocaine gel, oral gel, and tantum. And I, I've used all three, and they seem pretty equivalent, although I tend to use xylocaine gel a bit more nowadays. Again, to summarize, treatment is supportive. And the main issue is not the lesions over the, over the, the body, but the lesions in the mouth, which can lead to dehydration. Thankfully, it's it, it's a self-limiting condition. Again, it, it doesn't last that long. On average, it's ten days. Usually, the ulcers they may not heal with, within those within the first couple of days, but the pain does go down first couple of days. Which brings me to my last point: is so okay? So it's a self-limiting condition, and the biggest question parents will all, all, always have after you've explained to them how to deal with it, how to treat the child is when can they go back to school or how long are they infectious? They have a birthday party on the weekend. Can they go to the birthday party on the weekend? <laughs> and that question is a bit tricky as well. I've actually asked a couple of pediatricians about what they thought and the answers are quite variable. Some pediatricians have said that, told me that well, they can return after the fever is gone or two days after the fever is gone or after the rash is gone. I tend to talk, I tend to say the, la the latter because there is some decent evidence that uh, they're most infectious during their during the period where they have a rash. However, what's really crazy about this virus is that you can still find this virus in the stool. I think uh, one month after the infection. I think with Coxsackie virus, it's six weeks after the infection. You still find it in the stool. For the entire virus, it's, it's almost two, it's almost, it's ten weeks. So you're dealing with, uh, almost two months and almost, almost, and almost three months. So the, the main thing is to, uh, encourage proper hygiene and, uh, to not, to get the kids not to throw around their stool on the walls, so on and so forth. Which, if they're young, and if they're a bit wild, can be tricky. So to summarize, hand, foot, and mouth disease is a very infectious, condition which tends to peak around summer and fall. It usually presents with a very characteristic rash, a uh, macupapular vesicular rash, which is usually seen on the palms and the soles of the feet as well as within the mouth. In some cases it might spread to the elbows and the knees as well as the groin and the buttocks. If it's fine somewhere else, consider that differential. It is a clinical diagnosis, though you can actually, if you're not sure and you have a juicy lesion, you can 
swab it to make sure that you're dealing with hemp root mouth disease. So you will either see Coxsackie virus or enterovirus A16 and enterovirus 71. Management is supportive. Main issue is the oral lesions can cause dehydration. You have two options. One is to give pain control. So acetaminophen or ibuprofen. The other is to give topical anesthetics, but be, such as xylocaine, gel, oral gel, or tantum. But be careful in children less than two for, for xylocaine and oral gel and less than five for tantum because there's some serious side effects and some theoretical risk of, of aspiration. The disease lasts around 10 days and is most likely most infections while the rash is there. So if the parents ask you how long you should wait before exposing uh, their, their, or exposing their kid to other kids, I would say uh, to be safe, uh, to wait until the rash is gone. It's a similar thing that I did myself. I didn't go to work until the rash is gone because I didn't want to give it to my patients. So hopefully that was helpful. And for September, we have a bit of a surprise in our podcast. Dr. Wahid will be back. Uh, and I really hope you enjoy that one as well. Take care. Bye.